Kitavo. Parsha Kitavo. Yeah, we got it? Yeah. There's one in Spanish. Oh. There's a Chumash in Spanish over there. It's only Bracious? Oh, it's only Bracious? Oh, sorry. Okay. Parsha's Kitavo. And before we get started in our Parsha, I want to back up a little bit and put us into context of where we are and what's going on over here. Okay? Um, if you've heard this from me before, I apologize. I'll try to be brief so you can do other things that are more interesting or more different to you. Okay. So the book of Deuteronomy is, is Moses' swan song to the Jewish people. Okay. It starts on the on Kodesh Shvat in the biblical year 2488. It's the year it's, Moses is about to pass away. The Jews left Egypt so if there's someone coming, the electricity company outside, I wasn't sure if we let him in or not. Or yeah, 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 yeah. But oh, let him go to Tavari. Yeah, but Tavari's not here, so I wasn't sure. She'll be there in a second. Okay. <laughs> I'll let him in. I just want to Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the Jews leave Egypt in the year 2448 in creation years. They've been 40 years in the desert, and this is Moses' last hurrah to the Jewish people. So the book of Deuteronomy starts on Rosh Chodesh Shvat. And he, Moses is going to pass away on the 7th of Adar. So the longest possible amount that this whole book can be given over in is in 37 days. Okay? Um, if you take a look at where we are, Parshat Kitavo, we're sort of towards the end of the Chumash, which means chronologically, I don't know what day it is exactly, but we're definitely closer to the end of Moses' life than the beginning. Um, and, and the book of Deuteronomy is essentially broken up into three parts. So the first three Torah portions, Dvar and Veschan and Re'e, is when Moshe is going to go over the Jewish people's history, tell them off for some stuff that they did wrong, and sort of gently guide them and correct them for things that have happened. So those are the first three Torah portions. Dvar and Veschan and Then you have, uh, then after Dvar and Veschan and Re'e, then you have uh, Shoftim. One second, let me just double check. Put them right. Yeah. Then you have Shoftim, uh, Kiseitze, no, I missed something. Dvarim Eschan. Sorry, Dvarim Eschan and Akev. Okay. Dvarim Eschan and Akev. Moshe is going over the history. I used to know this, and I should know this. And I'm going to make everybody else learn it because I messed up. Okay, Dvarim Eschan and Akev. He goes over the history. Then, then Re'eh, Shoftim, and Kiseitze. We have a lot of mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that we've heard for the first time now, mitzvahs that are repeated. As we're going into the land of Israel, Moses is giving us one more like review and some things, for example, Shema. We only hear about Shema for the first time now because it wasn't relevant. The remembering Hashem when you lived in the desert where your food and your water and everything was miraculous, you didn't need to be reminded to remember Hashem. It was like literally your bread and water, right? So that was the, the next two Torah portions. And now, Kitavo and Mitzavim Vayelach Hazinu Sabracha. This is wrap up. We're gonna, Moses is gonna bless the people. This week's, there, there's, there's a lot of wrap up that's going on. Now this week's Torah portion basically has two things going on, okay? The two things that happen in this week's Torah portion, has anybody had a chance to look at the, portion, the Torah portion yet? We have two major themes. Do you know, Malki, give me one of them. Major um, thing, the, the, the description of the Eretz Yisrael is like, it's having a place. Like, Kisabo, oh, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, like the, the, the contrast, like, 
that the the place of like the the, the land of uh, milk and honey. Right. So the beginning. So the beginning of the parsha, which we're going to go back into and discuss, really discusses, as Monica said, the beauty of the land of Israel, but more specifically, the mitzvah of Bikurim, the mitzvah of giving thanks to Hashem, and we're going to get back to that. The second half of the Torah portion, which is pretty much starting from the sixth Torah reading, is um, it's really pretty horrible stuff. It's what happened. There's a, the beginning of. If you do keep the mitzvahs, these amazing things are going to happen to you. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen to you. And the sixth aliyah pretty much has 96 um, terrible, terrible things that will happen to the Jewish people if they do not keep the mitzvahs. Um, and then the, then the Torah portion finishes off. There's a little bit more detail. We're going to talk about it also. But that's pretty much the two things that are going on in this Torah portion. Um, so, uh, an interesting question is last week's Torah portion, if anybody remembers, had like mitzvahs and mitzvahs and mitzvahs and mitzvahs. Every verse, every three verses was another mitzvah. It was like chock-a-block. Like, <coughs> we have one mitzvah in this parsha. Why not stick with the mitzvahs? Why does this mitzvah get a standalone sort of almost as an intro to the next section of the Torah which is going to be like blessings and eh, and the not such blessing things that are going to happen. All those things are going to, like, why is that one mitzvah sort of, I don't say it's an orphan mitzvah. It's not really an orphan mitzvah, God forbid. But it's like, it seems there's only two things happening in this Torah portion. We're like, why weren't you in the other, like with all the other mitzvahs over there? Why were you not with all your friends? Parenthetically, there are two more mitzvahs that we're going to learn about next week. The mitzvah of Hakka and, and, learn, and, and writing a Sefer Torah. We'll get to that next week. But we're, we're pretty much, the Torah as a guidebook is pretty much finished with mitzvahs, okay? So hold on to that question for a second. If I don't answer it, make sure I do answer it. So somebody make sure that I don't forget my train of thought. That's one thing. The other thing that I want to talk about for a second is this whole idea of so many terrible things that Hashem says if you don't do mitzvahs are going to happen. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, and then we're going to go into the parsha and look at some, something specifically. Okay. First of all, in the Torah, we twice, I'm not sure that's the correct English sentence, twice we have a version of, of maledictions, which is a nice word, but nobody ever really uses. It's a nice word for things that don't, not wishing a person well. Curses are whatever you want to call them. We have it once before Shavuot, and we have it once before Rosh Hashanah. In case nobody's aware of the fact, Rosh Hashanah is literally around the corner. <laughs> for about, I don't know, like 15 days to Rosh Hashanah. Um, and and so, there, so, so what's interesting about the Torah portion is that it is, it is sort of with an order and without an order. Meaning, on the one hand, the Torah portion is always the next Torah portion that's going on is going to be the next Torah portion. On the other hand, the rabbis did build in certain... This has to come here. Certain building blocks that have to be uh, in place. So, for example, the, the curses have to be before Shavuot, but never the week right before Shavuot. And the curses have to be before Rosh Hashanah, but never the week right before, before Rosh Hashanah. So the, the, the Parsha of Kitavo that we're doing this week is the Shabbos before the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah. Now, it happens that Rosh Hashanah is Shabbos this year. But if it had been a different day, like, it's always going to be the Shabbos before the Shabbos of Rosh Hashanah. 
Does that make sense in English? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so what's going on? So there's a lot of conversation that goes on about this. Um, first of all, somebody could just put their back on. I'm dying. I'm the only person who's dying with Peter. Thank you. Um, so, the, so there's a lot of conversation about this. First of all, in the Talmud, it talks about the idea that the, the year and its curses should end and the year with its blessings should begin. That there is this place, like, sort of, you know, out with the old and in with the new. So, like, there's a place that we want to say anything that should have happened, done. It's done. We're going into the new year, and it's all going to be beautiful, and it's all going to be wonderful. And on the other hand, this, the rabbi said, how could we have this be the last thing that you hear, the last Torah reading that you hear before Rosh Hashanah? You would just go into the holiday so depressed and so, you know, which is a really nice kind of statement of how we actually listen to the Torah reading. <laughs> you know, like, the, right? right? And we listen to it and we absorb it and it's so real to us and we hear it. And so that, that's really what it's supposed to be, right? We're supposed to, like, hear it and say, Right? I can't, I can't, I can't. And so the, so the sage said, we can't go into Rosh Hashanah right, right with that being the last thing that you heard. So the, the, the curses are always the Shabbos before the Shabbos of Rosh Hashanah or the same with Shavuot. Um, one of the things it talks about in Hasidus, which is such an interesting way of looking at it, is that um, if you want to put something into a vessel, you want to make sure that the vessel is clean. Um, you know, you're not going to just like sort of take something beautiful and, and special and holy and even something as prosaic as, you know, you're baking a cake, right? You're not going to just like pull anything out of the closet and start making your cake in there without checking that the vessel is actually clean, right? And if what you're going to put in there is more precious and more special, then you want to make sure it's really, really, really clean and sterilized and the whole shebang that's going on, right? So Hasidah says... When we talk about what's going on and we look at it, and in our eyes, it is, whoa. If you're a student of Jewish history, by the way, and you look at these, you look at the, the verses at the end of this Torah portion, we literally have done all of them. Like, through Jewish history, we've had situations of being afraid in the night and nobody's chasing us. And, and, and you know parents, you know, eating their children and all different kinds of things that are crazy that are in the, right? All of this stuff has happened to us. It's all happened to us. And what, one of the things that Thoreau talks about in the Sicha is that if the cleansing that's happening before Rosh Hashanah, sorry, parenthetically, before Shavuot, we have 48 curses and before Rosh Hashanah, we have 96 there's, yeah, it's, it's twice as many here. So that means whatever good is coming in, whatever we're going to be absorbing from Rosh Hashanah for the new year has to be so sublime and so beautiful and so perfect that we need to have, we need to make sure that the vessel, that we need to make sure that we are clean and fresh and perfect and like all of that. So when we look at the way that, so when we look at the things that are like, <gasps> If there's anybody ever, and I know this maybe isn't like the right analogy, but like it just popped into my head, but like, have you ever had to like really clean a chilling pot <laughs> or some yeah. kind of pot that's really, it's like, there's some stuff, like you just give it a little wish and swish and it's clean. And then there's some stuff, it's like, <laughs> some, you know, um, we really, 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 and this is my bracha to all of us. We know that if this is being said to us before Rosh Hashanah, then it means that what's coming is beautiful and special and so amazing because it needs us a little bit of 
at least having the words of some hard chemicals and like a, a metal scrubby to get the little bits off the, the corners of the recesses of our vessel. But my bracha to us is really, 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 really that it shouldn't only be words. It should not be something that we actually feel deep in our hearts and deep. I mean, we should feel it on an emotional level, like to say, okay, we're cleansing, but not like God forbid on any kind of physical level that our lives should be beautiful and clean and sparkling and healthy and only reveal good in so many messages, so many, so every single aspect of our life. Like we shouldn't, God forbid, need to actually put in the effort to, to, to get it clean. Like we should, we should hear the words and we should like, okay, we got it. This we got to tweak, this we want to fix, sababa. We could do this, but not to, God forbid, have it in any kind of like very, uh, very deep way. We're going to look at it, some of the things that are really very beautiful, but I want to start with the beginning of the Parsha. Um, so that's, that's basically the two things that are going with the Parsha. I'm going to get back to why the, the Bikurim is here, but we're going to get to, let's first, what is the Bikurim? Okay, that's what we're going to start with. It talks about, if you look in the Chomish, if anybody has a Chomish and you're following with us, it's Parsha's Kitavo, it's chapter 26. It's actually starting at the beginning of a, tra- a chapter, which doesn't always happen. And it talks about the Hayak Kitavo, the arts, when you come into the land that Hashem has given you, there's an inheritance and you will, you will, uh, you'll, you'll inherit it and you'll sit there. And then it says that Velakata, someone want to read for us? You can read in English. Who has it? Two, three, four, and what do you read? That you shall take the first fruit of every... You shall take the first of every fruit of the sec- of the ground that you bring in from your land that Hashem your God gives you, and you shall put it in the basket, and you shall go to the place that Hashem your God will choose to make his name rest there. I want to pause for a second. I'm going to get back to it. Notice that it does not say where we are going to go with this gift. It says go to the place that Hashem rests his name. Now, we know that historically for much of his, well, not, I was going to say for much of history, but that's actually not true. But the place that people did for many, many years, they took it to the temple. Now, the temple, at the end of the day, only, both temples combined, only stood for 830 years. And there was a 70-year break in the middle. Like, we didn't actually have the temple for a very, very long time. And one of the things that our rabbis teach us is the place of the, the place that God chooses to make his name, how do you, how do you, l'shach and shmashem, how do you, the God, the place that God, that your, God, your land that Hashem, your God, gives you. No, no, no. The uh, place that Hashem... Where are we going to bring it? To the place that Hashem chooses to rest His name there? Yes. Could be any place. It actually could be any place. And, the, and one of the things that we need to do is that we need to actually search for the place that Hashem is putting His name there. Now, right now, shocking but true, we don't have a temple. I mean, it could change, but like for right this minute, there's no temple on, on Temple Mount. But does that mean that God's name isn't found any place in this world now? No. No. But we have to work a little harder to look for it. And I would, I would venture to say that sitting in a Beit Midrash here and learning is a place where, we're, where Hashem is choosing to have his name uh, rest. And so I think it's very important and very, you know, if we can only do things in the temple, well... We've been out of luck for a really long time. Like, that's not very helpful, right? But can we take some of that attitude, can we take some of that behavior and transfer it into our lives today? Okay, then we have something to talk about. Because if it's only temple-related, then for right now, we're a shtickle stuck. Okay, Hadassah, continue. Shtickle stuck. Um, <laughs> stuck. <laughs> you right? shall, you no. shall come to whoever will be 
the Kohen in those days, and you shall say to him, I declare today to Hashem your God that I have come to the land that Hashem swore to our forefathers to give us. The Kohen shall take the basket from your land and lay it before the altar of Hashem your God. Okay, we're going to pause here for a second. The, the Gemara has a whole, whole, whole description of what happened when this process of Bikurim took place. And basically what happened was uh, that the farmers, when their trees started to ripen, would go and they would put some kind of marker on the first fruit. It was only for fruits that Eretz Yisrael is blessed with. Um, figs, pomegranates, dates, blah, 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 blah. And, and, um, and they would put the first, like some kind of, they say a gumi, but it's probably, not, it's probably not rubber, probably didn't even exist then. But it was like some kind of tie around the beginning uh, buds. And when the whole tree started actually blossom, whatever, there were those that had the ribbon around them. They know, oh, those are the first fruit. That was the first fruit. And they would bring it to the, the temple. I, parenthetically, I've been looking and I have not found the right answer. So if anybody found the correct, the correct answer, I'm wondering, and I didn't see it, and I think maybe it's so obvious that I'm just overthinking the situation. Was the first fruit brought from any, like from a tree or from the entire orchard? It means if I only had one tree, so then it's not, it's like a no-brainer, right? I only have one tree, so it's going to be whatever I'm going to bring of the first fruit. But if I have an orchard of a hundred trees, do I bring the first fruit from each tree or the beginning of the orchard? What? I don't know. It's the first fruit of the first tree. I, if I have an orchard, what? It, it, wouldn't it be all the first fruits? Because like tzedakah is 10% or something? No, so it's not. So it's interesting. Yeah. Bikurim, it's a good oh, question. Oh, no, it's Nala. not Bikurim. No. It's, so, it's not tzedakah. Right, no, but Bikurim actually doesn't have an amount given. There's no amount for how much you have to bring for Bikurim. But, so, so back to my question, is it, the, the sages have given a, like a, a, they say like, if you want to do it nicely, give 2% of the first fruit. So is it of the you mean, I only have one tree, actually. In my, and, I, and, it's, and I don't think I'm going to get any fruit out of it. I have like two pomegranates that are holding on for dear life. All the first fruits have logs. I don't have a temple anyway, but it's like... But, um, but uh, that, I don't know the answer. Like, if I have 100 fruit trees, do I have to mark the first fruit on each tree? I don't know the answer to that question. If anybody has an answer, then I'd be curious to know. But basically what would happen, so then the fruits would ripen. They would have the first fruit, however much they wanted to give of it. Like I say, the rabbi suggests to give 2% of your first fruit. Um, and parenthetically, not all fruit holds up very well. So you could bring dried figs. You could bring raisins instead of grapes. Okay? You could bring wine or olive oil instead of those items. But you couldn't bring pomegranate juice or whatever. Like certain fruits, like there's a whole, convers- a whole conversation in the Talmud. Can you juice the fruit if you can dry it? Can you it? And they, basically, the sages said you can juice your olives and your grapes and bring that. Um, and then what would happen was pretty much around, around Shavuot's time, like in the spring when most of the harvest was ready, they, people would start to come and they would, take their, they would take their fruit and they would put it into a basket. And the Talmud discusses that if you were rich, you would put it into a golden basket. And if you were poor, you would put it into a wicker basket. And there was a whole procession going to the Bet HaMikdash from all over, all over, all over Israel, and if we think about like today, like we have paved roads, and it's all it's not a big deal. But back in the day, it was a big deal, and they used to literally go from village to village, and they would collect people that say, "We're going to Yerushalayim. We're bringing our first fruits. 
come join us, and then they would collect more people and more farmers all along the way. And as they got closer to Yerushalayim, they would have animals with, they, it says they had birds, the, the Talmud says they had birds like attached to like some kind of thing. So like there were birds fluttering above, and there were like animals with ribbons in their horns and everything. It was, people were playing the flute. It was a massive, massive, joyous procession. All that was missing, I think, were dago sticks and cotton candy. But we, we can arrange that for, you know, the next round to be court. Like, we're on that. But it was a massive, massive, massive celebration. And the, they, used to, they used to come out from Jerusalem to meet the people who were bringing the Bikurim. And they would, like, with song and dance, they would walk them and sing and dance them to the Beit HaMikdash to bring these fruits to Hashem. Okay? Question. Sorry, I think I missed it. So all this, like, fruits and all this stuff, like, are the Cohen's? eating it or do they like burn it okay so we didn't get to that yet that's why that's why you don't so they're going to bring all the stuff okay now however much anybody's going to bring we're we're not talking about a tenth of your produce it's not like you know what i mean whatever it is like if the rabbis are suggesting two percent it's it's it doesn't have to even be a super substantial gift like you know a basket of fruit kind of situation you know like some like when it get rotten by the time. Well, so that's why they so that's what they say the things that are going to get rotten you have to pro- you have to process. So you'll dry the figs, you'll dry the grapes. Uh, the pomegranates hold for a very long time. I have learned that. By the way, when pomegranates look yucky and dry on the outside, they are still delicious and, f- and fresh inside. Note to self because we're going into <laughs> pomegranate season here. Um, uh, so whatever's gonna they're gonna be able to dry. They can dry the dates. They can whatever. But like the things that they they can't. So that's why. It's also a, sort, a certain time thing. So they would come to the base of Mikdash, and they would come to whichever Kohanim were there, and they would bring them their baskets, and each person would have their basket taken by the Kohen. And the Kohen, there's something called Tnufa, that when you bring a carbon, when you bring a sacrifice, it gets lifted and waved. It's up and down different directions. You, every sacrifice gets up and down, front and back, side to side, so oh, cover like all the, directions. Like the lula Similar to a lula, but it's not a lula. It's a basket yeah. of fruit. And then uh, they used to put it near the base, near the mish, near the sorry, they used to put it, put it near the mizbeach. They used to put it near the altar, but they did not burn it. Then they would the kohen would bring it back, give it to the person to again wave the fruit, and then it would be given the person who now had just waved the fruit now gives it to the kohen, and it's the kohen's to eat in Jerusalem. Okay, so it does to eat. So the kohen's to eat in Jerusalem. It's not for the person to eat per. Personally, right? That makes sense. It's not mine to eat. I give it to whichever Kohen is on duty, and then they get to eat it in Jerusalem. They have to eat it in sanctity and all that kind of stuff, but they get to eat it. But, like, then how is that, like, going to, towards, like, God? We're going to get to there. Someone else is mm-hmm. Also, what if they just get so much fruit? And they're like, I can't eat this much fruit. So it's like Kohen party, because it's only a Kohen like, who's allowed to eat it. Or there's only, there's or others, like, what if you're the Kohen that's not on duty at that time of year? You're just... Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Also remember, like, you're not going to have a very big window to eat this. So these, these are very valid points. Like, imagine, like, if all the farmers in Israel were bringing their fruit within a... Like, I can't eat 100 apples in a day. Like, it's just not going to happen. Right. And, and it, let's say the stuff's all going to come in a three-week period, mm-hmm. let's say, right? So... I, I, I don't know, practically speaking, how maybe they didn't have that much. Maybe they weren't bringing that much. Mm-hmm. Certain things are going to hold longer, right? The grapes and the raisins and the date, the dried figs, the dried dates, those are going to last for a longer amount of time. Um, so, and maybe more Kohanim knew this was a good time to be on duty in the base of Ignos because you're going to get a lot of fruit. But remember, it can only be eaten in Jerusalem. 
So there's like a little bit of a, what am I going to do with this? Like I can't take it back to my family in Ashkelon because they can't eat it there unless the family comes to Jerusalem and has a fruit party. Like, oh, I don't know how it's all going to work, you know? Although, if they come around Shavuot's time and people are bringing sacrifices anyway, so we have some fruit, we have some meat. Like we probably have a party then, right? Like they were really good to go, but I don't know the details exactly. But Sarah, you raised a very good question. How is giving something to the Kohen to eat, giving it to God? That's a very good question. And, the, huh? The Kohen service is God, so you servicing the Kohen service is God? Right. So, so, so the practical answer is um, there are different types of sacrifices. Some sacrifices are meant to be burnt totally. Some are meant to be partially burnt and partially given to the Kohen. Some are partially burned, partially given to the coach, partially given to the person, all different kinds of things for sacrifices. So the, 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 like, the simple answer is like, well, this happens to be a sacrifice that doesn't get burned. It gets eaten by the Kohen. And Nav is right. Like the Kohen is the representative of Hashem. And so therefore, when the Kohen eats it, it's like you're giving it to Hashem. But I want to add another layer to that because that's all nice and fine if you have a temple and if you have a... You know, and if you have a Kohen that could eat the, the, the Bikur, that could eat these fruits. Parenthetically, by the way, the Jews were in the land of Israel for almost 500 years before they had a temple. So there was questions of that they didn't bring, there was the, the, the tabernacle was in Shiloh for a bunch of like almost 400 years, and it was in Nov and Givon, it was in different places. So they would go to wherever Hashem was currently resting his name there, they didn't only go to the temple. But we don't have a temple. So like, what does this mean for us? Like, what does this mean for us? And I want to back up for a second, and I want to, I want to share a thought. And the thought is like this. Has anybody, does anybody here live on or near a farm or fruit trees or ever had a vegetable patch or anything like that, right? Okay, so I am very, very new to the world of keeping, growing things alive, except for children. <laughs> Baruch Hashem, have had good <laughs> that's been fine but like things I grow and like I have to like take care of really it's been it's 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 very new that this is my this is my reality um and it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time and especially if you're planting something from the beginning like I my pomegranate tree little flex for my pomegranate tree which I didn't I didn't plant from a seed but I did right when the first flowers come out on that tree there is such joy running through our entire house. It's one little nebuch tree in our chatzera. You'll come see it, and it's like, it's not like the most beautiful, gorgeous, whatever thing, but when the flowers come out, it's like, Ma, did you see? There's a bug. And we all, like, we're so, so, so excited, right? Now, can you imagine having to put in all that effort, and they're like, oh, but that's not for you. That's for God, Right? I had to water it. I had to, well, I don't actually need it, but I had to water it, and I had to give it, and I had to, and I had to, and I had to, and now I have to give it to God? Mehmet? Really? If you've ever baked challah, you have that same, that, same, that same process of giving things to Hashem, the first things that we're giving to Hashem. And you have this whole FNMP curve. All of that stuff takes a lot of effort. And what we're going to say to Hashem is, I have to put in my, I have to put in my effort. I gotta put my, I gotta do my thing. I can't just say, well, if you want me to have this, it'll just like show up on my tree, right? Even a tree that's already bearing fruit still needs tending and needs watering and needs fertilizer so often, it needs, it needs attention, right? And in our lives, and in our lives today, and this is where it becomes relevant to us, we do things and we put in a lot of effort 
for whatever it is, whatever our job is, whatever our social, what well, doesn't matter, all the things that we do that help create us and make us who we are. We put an effort. We work on our we work on our hobbies, we work on our music, we work on our writing, we work on our painting, we work on all the things. We put in so much effort to do all those kind of things. And what we need to do is we need to take a lesson from Bikurim and say, whoa, pause. What am I supposed to do with all of this? So part of it is gonna go to the Kohen. And when we come to that place of connection to Hashem, that is Kohen-like. Kohen-like means I'm here to serve Hashem. The Kohen doesn't have his own. He doesn't have his own land. He doesn't have his own stuff. His job is God, right? And even though we all have jobs, please God, you guys, good jobs, well-paying jobs, the people who are nice and in good circumstances, right? But we all have jobs and we all have, but is, does my job define me? Or is the job that I have part of what I do in my service of Hashem? And when we tap into the place that everything that I'm doing is part of my service of Hashem, then I'm tapping into the Kohen in me. I'm tapping into this place of what I do, I do for Hashem. And then, even when we do something as prosaic as eating, we're like, wait a second, I'm not just eating. I mean, sometimes you are just eating. Like, let's be honest, sometimes we are really just, you know, whatever. And sometimes we really are eating to serve, to, to fuel our bodies and souls as they work together so that we can serve Hashem, that we could do what we need to do. We eat food that's yummy and delicious in honor of Shabbos, in honor of Yom For bringing. For bringing, for sure, for bringing, right? <laughs> for sure. Um, so the question is, what are we doing with our lives? And if we say, like, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, we could just do whatever we want, then we miss the point. And I think part of the, the lesson that we walk away from Bikur, or we could walk away from Bikur, is a few things. First of all, one of the things is, yes, Hashem had a big part in whatever it is, in whatever our success is, there was a blessing from Hashem that helped us achieve whatever it is. And the first thing that we need to do is that we need to say thank you for it. And we, the way we say thank you is that we go to the place that Hashem is found and we say, we say thank you. We actually say thank you. And what's very interesting, Hadassah didn't read it there, but if you look at the next bunch of verses, the person who comes to bring these fruits, and there's all different kinds of halachic conversations, who can bring, who can say, when can they say, what time, whatever, they have a very, very long declaration of thanks. They don't just say, yo God, that was amazing, here, thank you. You know, like that's not what they say. There's like a whole long thing. And if you take a look inside verse five and six and seven, it talks about that I speak, and I speak, to, I, I answer in front of Hashem, and I say that, my, my father was an Aramite, an Aramite, translated, translated. He, he enslaved my father, and then we went down to Egypt, and we were there for many years, and we became a great nation. Do these words look very familiar to anybody? Mm-hmm. What are these words from? From the Haggadah. The body of the Haggadah is these five verses expanded, okay? And they, the Egyptians did bad for us, and they gave us hard work, and we cried out to Hashem, and he heard our cries. And da, 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 he took us out of Egypt, and he took us to this land, and now I'm coming, and I'm bringing the first, my, the first fruit that, you know, my, okay? I want to just say something. One of the Hasidic Rebbe's talks about the idea that sometimes when we need something from Hashem, or we need something from another person, we're very effusive in discussing why we need what it is that we want the other person or we want Hashem to give us. We don't just say, like, I really could use blah, 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 right? 
But somehow, when it comes time to say thank you, we're like, yo, thanks. <laughs> right? And, and right here, the first thing that that Torah is teaching us, how important it is to be gracious in our thank you. The, the person comes and brings their fruit. How much are they bringing? They're bringing a basket of, fill it up. You're going to have five pomegranate. I'm making it up. Maybe you have more. I don't know. But you don't have to. You can come with a basket and you get like a five-minute declaration of time from the Kohen in the base of Mikdash to say to Hashem, not just this is my fruit, here it is, thank you, but pause and say this is a time for me to say where did I come from? What have I gone through? What has happened in my life? Who has helped me in my life? Where do I move forward in this? And now I'm going to say thank you in that, in that space. Hadassah, one second. One second. And I want, to give, I want to give us a plug that in this week of Bikurim, it's very, very, it would be a very nice thing for us personally to think about our own lives and say, who helped me on my journey? And did I ever actually say, thank you, you made a difference to my life? It could be a teacher, it could be a mentor, it could be a, anybody, it doesn't actually matter. But I think sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, of course they know how I feel about the situation. Maybe and maybe not. And I think like the exercise is for them, but it's also for us. Do we ever take the time and think, you know, we look more like, look at me, I'm an adult, I do all these things, I'm so amazing. And maybe we need to say, maybe we got a little bit of help along the way. Maybe it, it would be a nice thing for us to acknowledge that yes, we worked hard and yes, we put an effort and nobody's discounting that it took a lot to get us to where we are on our part, but we also had help. There's none of us who are like radishes raised you know, by themselves. Like we all had help someplace and it's a nice thing. This is not halacha. This is just my little bad box for today. Mm. To reach out to somebody that helped you and say thank you for, for helping me there. Hadassah, question or comment? I, I just was, my comment was, and um, it says here that they prostrated themselves. Yes. It's like such gratitude that you laid yourself completely flat to show gratitude. So what service in the Beis HaMikdash, service in the temple, often included prostration. It's not one of the things that we do. It's considered not, it's like one of those things that are temple related mm. or not Jewish. Mm, We're right. very careful about that. Oh, We're very right. careful about it, but it's actually full prostration. Ah, okay. What yeah, is and I'm to lay to like put your hand like lay down on the floor like all the way down. If you go like to shul on Yom Kippur, if you see, right. So if you go to shul uh, in Yom, on Yom Kippur where we do go down, um, you'll notice. Okay, you're actually halachically not allowed to prostrate yourself on a stone floor. It's considered avodazar. It's considered idol worship. Okay, so you would put something down. You would put a towel down. You would put a a talus. You would put something. So if you, I'm just putting, giving a heads up that in my notion, even in some communities when I was growing up, women did not prostrate themselves like this. In my notes. They absolutely do. If you're going to be a Mayanote and you want to do that, make sure you have something because our, our floors upstairs are, in fact, stone. Mm -hmm. So you can't prostrate on stones. You can put Talit on, like, the floor. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's in service. Okay. You're not just dropping it on the yeah. floor. It's in service. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay? But you'll see they sometimes have, like, a little towel, mostly for your head. Like, your head goes down, so it should go onto something. And it's not so you don't bang yourself. It's because you can't go onto something. Because stone. of gratitude or, like... What? In, on Yom Kippur? No, Yom Kippur is a different conversation. Yom Kippur, and just to di digress for a second, Yom Kippur, it, we, 
we go, we prostrate when Hashem's name would have been said. Okay, because in the, in the, in the Beis HaMikdash, we have the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He that we don't know how to pronounce. That was actually pronounced out fully in the Beis HaMikdash. And when the people heard the name uh, pronounced, it caused them to fall. Really? Like, it was like, uh, like your automatic reaction. Like, mm. if you ever been in a Jewish house and you hear a glass break, what's the first thing everybody screams? Bazel Tov, right? So when, sort of like that, in the Beis HaMikdash, when they heard Hashem's name, being pronounced, they automatically fell down. So we, in the shul, on Yom Kippur, when we say the part where the Kohen would say Hashem's name, we go down. We don't, we don't crash down. We are like, you know, like we are, we are so overwhelmed with the awe of Hashem's name, but we are sort of, not mimicking, but we're, we're memori- commemorating that service in the, in the base of Mikdash. Sorry, and just to be clear, so gra- uh, prostrate here doesn't mean gratitude. In, the, in this, in this, it's part of the service. It's part of the service. Meaning, the service that this person is individually bringing, doing, is bringing the fruit, saying the, uh, the, okay. the text, uh-huh. and prostrating. Uh-huh. Question. Uh, so, did you mean that it was like a, like a physical reaction, or was it like a s- more spiritual? Yes. The answer is yes. It, so had, like, it definitely had a phys- It was a, it was a, a spiritual sense of awe that had a physical manifestation. Absolutely. Like uncontrolled, like, or... That's what they say. I was never there to see it, so I don't know. Okay? Beseder. Um, one more thing that I want to say about... about uh, I want to say, um, I want to say about, uh, about this whole Bikurim situation is that if you see in the beginning, it says that the person takes the Lakachtim Meireshit Kolprihadama that you take from the beginning of all of your... the beginning of all your... the first of your fruit, actually... And one of the things that in Hasidus it talks about a lot is beginnings and firsts. Um, and, and where do we sort of, in our day, where do we sort of put God? Where do we put God in our day? And one of the things from Bikurim that we take away is Mireshit. Like, we want to dive into Hashem. Let's not wait till we can fit in some random time. Like Mireshit, the beginning of our day. And we know that... In, 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 in the Shulchan Aruch, it talks about that when you wake up, what do you say? First of all, what's the first you say? Moda'ani. The first thing you say is Moda'ani. We're thankful to Hashem for returning our soul. He's entrusting us with another day of go, do, and be, right? And so that is really coming from that place of from the first, the first moments of our day, the first place of our day, it's this place of gratitude to Hashem, um, of really... Uh, of, of, of acknowledging that gratitude. I want to say one more thing about the Bikurim, which is very, very interesting. I think it's very interesting. Um, it looks like when they came to the land of Israel, they gave Bikurim. And we know actually from the Talmud that that is not in fact the case. That they did not give Bikurim until all of the land was conquered and divided. Anybody know how long it took to conquer and divide the land? It took seven years to conquer the land and another seven years to divide the land. Now, I want to just point out something about the division of the land, which I always think is so classic Jewish. The land was divided by Moses, right? Before before they went into the land of Israel, they knew the division of the land. And still, (laughs) and still, 
It took really? seven years. To... But he's dead now, so I get more land. I don't like... know. I don't know. Maybe it was the internal tribes, how they divided up. I don't know exactly, right? But it says it took seven years to conquer land and seven years to divide the land. To divide the land. Now, it's presumably possible that somebody got their portion earlier on in this process and already had fruits that they could bring for a gift and say thank you, right? And they don't. They don't say thank you until everybody has the ability to say thank you. My thank you is not complete if you aren't able to, if you aren't in that position of being able to, to give thanks. And I think it's such a powerful lesson for ourselves because sometimes, I was talking to my husband about this, I was saying like, it's before Rosh Hashanah, like we just wanna have our year be good, our year be sweet, our, and like maybe we need to expand it a little bit. Like it's not only enough for my year to be good. Like it would be really awesome. I'm like not knocking it, God. I'm not knocking <laughs> it, really. But, but can we expand our prayers for everybody? Can we say everybody needs to be in a place of, of satiation so that they can give thanks as well? And, and that's sort of like my, this is not anything except my, my thought process about it. Like the Torah talks about it. One of the things that we say over here in the declaration that we say is, um, uh, I, I don't know, you think I, I should have marked the place, but I didn't. Um, it, no, no, in, the, in Rashi, it talks about the idea that part of the declaration that you say is that I was, I was, and Rashi brings down, that I was joyous and I made other people joyous as well. Um, I can't find the Rashi because I didn't mark it because I didn't, I didn't prepare for this Chumash. Um, that I think like that place of it not only worrying about my little or my big things that I need to have taken care of um, is something to think about. Like, can we expand that? And can we say, wait a second, if there's still people who are suffering and people in pain, like maybe we need to include them in our prayers a little bit as well. I don't know if we can do more than that, but that's, that's a conversation. The next little thing that we have... The next part that the Torah talks about is another declaration that the people, a, the, a farmer would make twice every seven years. Um, and it's basically, there is a cycle of tithes that a farmer needs to give. It's three year cycles. And every third year he needs to make a declaration that he got, he, he did it. He did all the tithes, he got them all out of his house. There's a Meisurish and there's Meisurshani, there's a Meisurani, there's all different kinds of things that the person has to give. Um, over a three-year cycle, and at the end of the third year, he needs to, or actually, beginning of the fourth year, he needs to make a declaration that I got the stuff out of the, in the third, in the first three years, I got it out, and in the seventh year, he does again for the other, the other three years, like, um, which I think is just an interesting thing, because, like, I think sometimes, you know, very big foundations, um, the, the money that was originally put into a foundation often doesn't actually ever get used, <laughs> Like, there's so much money, they're working off the interest. And Tyra tells us that every three years, you need to empty your storage house. You can't say, I'm going to, you know, you don't have to go right away, but you have to take care of it within a three-year time frame, which I thought was very interesting. Okay. Then uh, we have Hashem choosing us to be his nation. We choose him to be his, 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 he chooses us to be his nation. We choose him to be our God. Um, and then Moshe tells people to write all the Torah on on these big stones and to cover it with um, plaster, I guess. And um, 
when you go through the Jordan, it's in chapter 27, verse 4, when you go through the Jordan, you should put these stones into the Jordan. Now, one of the things, one of those little fun-known facts, little known fun facts, is that when the Jews cross with Joshua into the land of Israel, the, the Jordan split for them. Okay, they actually, it split just like when they left Egypt, so the, the Jordan splits, and they carry these massive stones, 12 stones, that have all Torah written on them. They leave it in the Jordan. When they come out of the Jordan on the other side, Moshe says they should again take stones and write the, all of the Torah on it. And um, oh, they just left those original stones in the river? So that's what it seems to, that's what the sages seem to think, right? Okay. Like, what's the point of that, right? Like, <laughs> You just leave the Torah inside a river, okay? So it's it's so it's interesting, and and the, and, the, and I don't know the answer, but like the question of how much holiness is imbued on the stones, and how much is it like sort of a, a debt? Like writing on stone is very different than writing on parchment, right? Writing on stone, in theory, should be more permanent. It should have longevity, and it should be there. And and is that maybe a statement of we're putting it here? It's here. It's like sort of foundational and it's staying here but it's not traveling with us this is not like the portable kind of Torah that we need to travel with us that has a different level of holiness so yeah they that that's what the Maharsham seemed to imply that it, that was stayed there that, no that doesn't make sense those were left there and then they had another more stones that they did when they came out um, and and it says that you that you should write in verse 27 verse 8 that you should write on these stones that's called very, very clearly, and Rashi says, Be'er heitev, b'shivim lashon, in 70 different languages, that when they come out into the land of Israel, the first thing they have to do is they have to make sure that Torah speaks to every single person. Not every single Jew, but to every single person. The Torah always describes that there are 70 core languages. Today, obviously, there are many more, but if, according to Torah, the core, there are 70 core languages, and they have to translate Torah into all of those languages. Now, Okay, great. But I think that perhaps something that we need to think about also is how do we translate Torah into our culture and to, into our language? Like, do, does it relate to us? Not that we're changing Torah, because that's not like how we do things, right? We're not changing Torah. But can we give it language that resonates with the generation that we're in? Or are we still talking, giving messages and lessons that worked for the shtetl. Like, Torah doesn't change, but do we package it differently so that it speaks to us in 2023 in a very different kind of, you know, space and time, and even look around the table. We have so many different cultures around this little table over here. Are we able, is Torah able to speak to me from the place that I am and that I identify with? Because if it doesn't, then we lost something. It has to speak to me here. Not just, not that it has to be, you know, Play-Doh'd to like work with what I think is, but if I can't give it language that, not just that I can give it to you in Spanish or Portuguese, but can I give it to you in a cultural context that resonates with you as well? And I think that's really, Hasidus does talk about that idea of, you know, is translating Torah a good thing or a bad thing? Right, because we know that there was when it was translated into Greek. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because translating Torah into Greek was considered one of the biggest tragedies of of, of history. But now we translate Torah into Russian and Spanish, and they're like, 
how many languages could it be translated into? Well, if it's a good thing, then we should be doing it. Then why is that a bad thing? And if it's a bad thing, why are we doing it now, right? So you can't just say, well, though he speaks Hebrew, like, big deal. People didn't speak Hebrew for many years. Translate into Aramaic, like, like all these kind of, okay, we don't speak Aramaic here, so like, we have two languages at a disadvantage. But, but um, and one of the things that it talks about in, this, in, the, in the commentaries is what is the purpose of translation? The Greek, the part of the reason that the Greek translation was considered such a tragedy was because the motivation for translating Torah into Greek was to teach was to teach Greek to the Jews. The Jews knew Torah. They didn't know Greek. So we're going to now translate what you know to what you don't know. So therefore, you will now have Greek. But if we're saying is what we're doing in translation now is the exact reverse. We have people who speak all these languages and they don't know Torah. If we can't bring Torah in their language, so then they have no access to Torah. Ultimately, yes, we want everybody to, be able to learn Torah in the original and that's a goal, absolutely. But I, but I think in the conversation of is translation a good thing or a bad thing, like what's my motivation? If my motivation is to bring you Torah, then yes, translate, translate, translate. But if it's to give you Spanish lessons, then, you know, not, not so good. <gasps> <laughs> okay. Um, guess what? We're not doing so well with time. Um, okay, the people when they cross over to when they cross over to um, when they cross over to the land of Israel, they basically are going to have people going on six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other mountain, and the Kohen, the Kohanim, and the Levim are going to be in the middle. Um, Har Grizim and Har Avel, and all the people. The, the Kohanim and the Levim are going to look to one side and they're going to give all these things. Blessed is the person who I think there's 12 or 14 things in the beginning. In chapter 27, verse 14 and 15 and 16, and it says, Cursed is the person who makes an idol. And everybody has to say amen. And then they would turn to the other side and say, Blessed is the person who doesn't make an idol. Now, the Torah doesn't give us the positive side of this. Just gives us curse to the person who does. And the commentary tells they were turning back and forth, and everybody there's a conversation where they have to say, you know, they did it. Let's keep it simple. They have this 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 incredible, incredible, it's called a krisas bris. It's a covenant. Hashem is creating a covenant with all of the Jewish people. There are three times that the that Hashem is gonna actually make a covenant with the Jewish people. And um, and this this covenant as a coming to Israel. It's actually, the sages tell us that this covenant is what's called arvus, for responsibility one for the other. And as we're going into the land of Israel, um, we're actually going to have a covenant, a covenant is made with all of us that we are responsible for each other. It's not whoever dies with the most toys wins. That's not the, con- that's not the conversation. It has halakhic ramifications. Why can one person make kiddush and, and have other people in mind? Because we do have this halakhic um, concept of Arvis, that we are responsible for each other. Um, but I think also when we talk about, like, what does it mean for us, again, back to that place of I think it's a very I love to, I love to trash Americans, but I can do it because I'm American, but, like, if, if I'm okay, then it doesn't matter what else is happening. Like, especially after New York, like, they did experiments about, like, having people lay down. Standards, yeah. No, but say they had a, a thing, like, people laying down, like, as if they're super injured. Literally, in New York, we're walking over the bodies and continuing on their way. They were, like, not stopping for anything, right? Um, uh, but but Torah, in, in Israel, there's actually a law on the books that if you are a medical professional and you pass an accident, you have to stop and see if they need your help. Even if it's clear that there's enough 
medical people that you don't have to, and it comes from this because Kal Yisrael or Avon Zelazeb, because all Jews are responsible for each other. So it's actually on the books in Israel that you have to, if you're a medical professional, you have to stop and say, can I be of help? Um, which I think is, I'm not a medical professional, so I can say it's a beautiful thing. I speak to people who are doctors, they hate being on plays when they say, is there a doctor on board? Um, but um, but, but that, that place of being responsible for each other, I think, is something that we all need to listen to and pay attention to because, yes, we're in a space and we're in a growth space. and It's very personal and it's very self-centered, but also can we raise our head and look out and say, how is my friend doing? How is my neighbor doing? Is there somebody who needs my help? Because that's going to be very important. Um, is this the third covenant? This is the third covenant, yeah. One was at Chorev, one was... A, uh, a different time, I forgot when. This is, let me just finish one thing and then I'll take as many questions as you want. There are a ton, a ton of terrible, terrible things over here. And um, uh, one second, I want to just finish with one thing. Um, practically speaking, in many communities, uh, there's like somebody who gets paid to get this aliyah. Like somebody takes one for the team and gets this, you know, gets this, gets this, gets called up for the sixth aliyah where they, uh, List where they basically get cursed on behalf of all the Jewish people. Um, in in most Chabad shuls, whoever is a Torah reader gets that aliyah. They don't call the person up for the Torah. He just like makes the brachas and like they read it very low and very slow. Like if they start speeding, like we got to read it, we got to say it, but we're not like enunciating it really loud and clear. Um, there was once, uh, and I, I forgot who, who, who it was, um, but one of the, one of the, uh, like a Rebbe who came out of the Holocaust and his show, usually we go very low and very slow and he kept saying, hecher, hecher, to do it louder, to do it louder. And they're like, whoever was the reader was like a little taken aback, but like listened. And at the end they asked like, why? And he said, I want God to know that we've done all of this already. Like it doesn't need to happen again. We've done all of this and, um, and we need to, and we need to just like change the narrative and, and just have some kind of positive thing. Um, I want to, f- I said to myself, this time I'm for sure going to write it down because in, the, in all of this, um, it gives, uh, and somebody will find it, I thought it was, no, in the, in, in all the words it talks about, um, why does all this happen to you? Why does it happen to you? And the Pasuk tells us that um, okay, I'm going to have to next time write down the Pasuk so I don't forget things or think I'm going to for sure remember because I didn't remember it. Um, oh, I did. Chapter 28, verse 47. Um, why does all this happen to you? Because you did not serve Hashem with gladness of heart for, with all the good that you were given. And the classic explanation is that we didn't serve Hashem when things were good for us. We were, we were um, Atheists in the foxhole, you know, like when things were bad, we said, Hashem, help us. And when things were good, we're like, we got this covered. So that's really the first thing that we talk about. But uh, the Arizal says, he puts the comma elsewhere. If you see under, 
uh, under the, the word levav, there's like this upside down in Hebrew. There's like this upside down, it's called an asnachta. It says, move it the other way, right? Because we did not serve Hashem b'simcha. We didn't serve Hashem with joy. We did mitzvahs. We did, we kept Shabbos and we learned Torah, but we couldn't find joy in what it was that we were, that we were doing. And therefore, it's a pretty harsh statement, I want to just say. Like, that we, because we were in joyous in what we were doing, we deserve to have, like, terrible things happen to us. Um, but I First of all, God should just give us good. He should give us revealed good and blessed good and, and easy to appreciate good. But I do want to say that we all know what it's like when you do something because you want to do it and you do something joyously and you do something because you have to do it. It's just not the same. You know, if there's somebody that you don't really like but you have to buy them a birthday present, for whatever reason you have to buy them a birthday present, you know, you're just not so into it. But if you like have, you have to get a present for somebody that you like, like you think about it and you agonize about it and you're like so excited to, the, the looking through the stores for the perfect gift is not a problem. It's like a joy, right? And it's, and Hashem is no different, I think, than anybody else. We, he wants things from us from a place of joy, not like here's your stinking mitzvah, but like I want to give this to you. I'm so excited to be here and to be present for you. So I want to, I want to give us a bracha. I want to give us a bracha that, you know, we're, we're starting our journey of learning together and um, we, should, we should not have to dig for the joy. We should be able to somehow have the joy float up and be whatever it is that we do. It doesn't matter. We do a lot. We do a little. Bikurim shows us it doesn't matter how much you bring. The question is, how are you bringing it? Am I bringing my one fig and my two dates to Hashem with song and joy and laughter and love? Or am I bringing truckloads of stuff and saying, take it, right? So I want to give us a bracha that whatever we put into our basket of our relationship with Hashem should be there with joy, with purpose, with meaning, and with just so much, so much goodness. And Hashem will like, whoa, that is awesome. I would love to give these people a beautiful, sweet, healthy, happy, revealed good year of only brachas. Have an awesome rest of the week and a great Shabbos. Thank you. Thank you.